This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. So, yes, we're here with Charles Frackia. Hello, Charles. Hey. And he is the founder of BioBright. That's right. Um, which is an exciting company in the field of synthetic biology, working on open source blocks for things. Yeah. And synthetic biology is a thing that we've been talking about a lot, both at the Solid Conference, where Charles ran a, a tutorial day, and uh, in all the stuff we've published, and in a lot of informal conversations that David and I have with people at MIT and the Media Lab and elsewhere. Exactly. Thank you for coming down and talking to uh, us it's today. It's my pleasure. I've loved this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about BioBright. Yeah, BioBright is uh, is actually a, a small company that we formed about a, a year ago now, and the the focus of it was how to create hardware and software tools that reinvent the way you do biology in the lab. Um, I I actually was trained as a biologist, um, and I was doing all sorts of experiments in synthetic biology, trying to revamp biology. But then I I just realized, like many of us actually in the field, that the tools just suck. They're mm-hmm. horrible. And so um, I realized also that the, the, the people who were going to fix this needed a hybrid background. And I was kind of pretty close to that. And so I decided to go to a media lab and um, perfect my background more in hardware and software. And, and that resulted in, in BioBright to really try and revamp the way we do things. So, so are the existing tools like um, unbearable enterprise solutions for labs? Or are they kind of things that like grad students have hacked together? Non-standard and closed source, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of both. Um, so you've got a lot of equipment that is actually quite complex to build, right? So it's inconceivable that every grad student or every individual in the lab or even in, in, a, in a pharma or industry would actually build their own. That's just mm-hmm. today is not really conceivable. Uh, and so those usually you buy. And more and more, there's a trend today, and this is kind of what worries me a little bit, is that there's a trend that these are becoming more and more black boxes. Mm-hmm. So it's a thing that you just press a button, it's nice and shiny, and <laughs> you press the button, it does everything <laughs> for you. But the issue is that you're then, uh, you're removing all of the knowledge from the process, and you have to rely on these machines, which you you know, obviously have their own uh, idiosyncrasies. So removing knowledge from the process is not necessarily what we are uh, interested in, in, in seeing in biology. I think you, you're going to see too much fragmentation if that happens. Hmm. So, And at the other end, what you have, as, as you mentioned, is that you have grad students who hack together their own solutions, but those are not scalable either, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the time to deploy even something that looks promising in the field of uh, whatever you want to call it, like new pipetters or, or even vision or, or mm-hmm. even cell analysis, these things it take a long time. And so really... What would be great for synthetic biology and biology in general would be tools that just accelerate the whole process, the whole design, build, test, um, so that you can have a, a real transformation of the way biology is done. The, the thing that excites me about your work from what we've talked about is, mm. you know, kind of taking some of the ideas developed in the software industry of like abstraction and standardization and bringing that into the hardware world of, of biology and you know, I guess you can talk more about how you're using some of the software tricks to be able to to be able to do this. But I think that building on top of it, one 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 thing that we explore a lot on this podcast is is how 
concepts and like abstractions and APIs and stuff like that and ways of doing things that have been developed in the software world like make files for example are amazing yeah. but they do not <laughs> exist in real life and so like bringing those types of paradigms into physical world stuff how to you know ex accelerate innovation across all that, those fronts yeah so uh, look that's right on actually because that's exactly where, where we want to play a role and we see ourselves playing a, a unique role I often uh, joke that we're missing the Linux for biology Mm -hmm. um, and we, we, we have tons of ambitions, but in general, whether it's us or someone else, something like that should emerge. There should be a, a number of interfaces that would allow you to collect data from all equipment in the lab, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter if it's BioRad or LifeTech or whoever it is, right? It, that really doesn't help anybody um, other than cap, make the user captive. And at the end of the day, biomedical challenge is so large that really we should be able to grab as much data as we physically can. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so, so I agree exactly. Standardized things like API, crypto. We're we're actually pretty strong on 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 crypto. So securely moving files around, uh, such that in more medical settings, that data doesn't get compromised. Mm -hmm. Today, mm -hmm. that field is absolutely <laughs> horrendous. I don't know how many healthcare providers got broken into this year, right? Many, too many, yeah, too many, many way yeah. too many. And, and then all the way down to the hardware. Um, so how do you collect information that nobody else is collecting? Things like sample variability in time or temperature or humidity. Things that um, traditional bioequipment manufacturers are not gonna make a ton of money off, off on but that the data would be tremendously useful to the end user. And so not to quote, I guess, what Nicholas Negroponte said in a TEDx talk recently, he said, do things that the market forces won't do. And I think that that's a great way to think about transformative technologies mm -hmm. and, and one that, that we, we try to instill at the very core of, <laughs> of what we have, yeah. Yeah, so, so what kinds of things are you guys actually making yeah, so we're working on a, uh, on a suite of like hardware sensors. Describe sensor. your demo, basically. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're working on a, on a suite of hardware sensors um, that have thing, very simple things like temperature, humidity, but are tailored to form factors that make sense for the biological lab. So that fit in certain tube sizes, um, such that you can get information as a proxy of your other tubes. So that's mm -hmm. one of the things that we're working on. Um, but then all of that information has to flow somewhere seamlessly, right? Because biologists are not going to care about configuring so-and-so, right, um, system into their, their centralized collection. That just doesn't matter. What matters to them is that the data is visible at the other end. And it shows up in MATLAB. It yeah. shows that it's exp exactly that it's exportable in MATLAB, and even then, you know, most biologists you say MATLAB. There, I, I like to joke <laughs> that when you you say to a biologist, "Hey, yeah, I I wrote this little uh, Python thing." It's like, yeah, w what a, what about the snake? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I study yeah. snakes. Yeah, exactly. No, in the, the programming language. Um, and, and yeah, so so it's exactly right. You you want? I like to joke that uh, uh, we our interfaces are MIMO, multi-input, multi-output, as much as possible. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay, you use Word documents to make your protocol all the power to you send that to us we'll parse it automatically mm -hmm. you know oh, i see right and, and because because you don't want to modify the workflow uh, and give a talk recently and kind of uh, uh, core principles of of the buy right interfaces and the approach is like one of them is do not change the user's work mm -hmm. because if you change it then the biologist ceases to be a biologist and we could yeah. have that conversation, and, hmm. and I think that is slowly going to change over time. But but certainly, you know, we need biologists today to continue doing infections in eggs so that we can get our vaccine, our influenza vaccine this year, uh, and things like that. You know, there's a pipeline. And so, you, don't, you don't need them. You don't want to like force the entire industry of biology to like stop everything they're doing so that they can learn how to program in Python and then get back to what they're doing. Like you need to. <laughs> 
Yeah. That that kind of why now thing is a good question, actually. You, you mentioned Nicholas Negropati saying do things that the market forces um, wouldn't encourage on their own. Yeah. So what what uh, what is it about the market forces today that, that haven't caused something like this to come about yet? I've talked about uh, in, in private with many people, but I guess I'll say it here, is that uh, one thing that worries me with the market forces in biology today is that we're headed towards healthcare, uh, what I call healthcare hell, you know, hmm. um, and many people have described it in different ways, is that you will get a bunch of siloed solutions that don't talk to each other, everybody trying to monetize on a captive audience, a captive uh, uh, user base. And so you'll get, yeah, Fitbit APIs. Okay, great. But they don't, you know, they're difficult to get to, or you need to write your own parser and they have their own app. Why? You know, mm-hmm. why? Mm-hmm. If you have something that's differentially good about doing accelerometers to get pedometry data, that's useful, right? And that should be useful in its own right. So it would be better if there was a, a series of, of standardized interfaces that talk to each other openly. Right and not trying to monetize on the individual user, so biology is headed that way. Unfortunately, everyone wants their own platform. I mean, in healthcare, right? No one, no one can get investment for something that isn't a platform. So everyone wants their own platform. So everyone is kind of standing around with their own game, and no one else is playing it with them. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that we are, um, you know, we are working in that space a little bit. Um, we have partnerships that are not announced yet, but but very exciting ones actually in healthcare related to how big platforms are not capturing this idea of multi-input and multi-output because Epic and not single them out, but Epic and Cerner, those big companies, mm-hmm. even Athena Health, they're printing money as it is um, for them to try and enable the end physician to know a pattern of use um, for across different facilities that don't necessarily have all the same system mm-hmm. is is one technically challenging and, and two just economically from a, from a business sense it's, it's exactly. too much risk it's too risky exactly but there are things that you can do here and there um, in any transition that you see, you know, from a, a linear curve to an exponential, you know, everybody talks about the inflection point. I, I like to, to think that you have to zoom into that inflection point and there's a series of step, staircase uh, steps enabling technologies that really lead to a threshold effect to this exponential change. And what we think about a lot is what are those individual stair steps and who is making those stair steps and how do we create our own such that everybody really kind of moves on to an, <laughs> a different model so your so your your customers are going to be sort of people um running or working in fundamental research labs um yeah so we have actually so we have customers uh, um in bioequipment we have customers more in pharma and in in healthcare as well now developing so traditionally what we're trying to i, I would declare let me put it this way i would declare success if a cornell or EE grad from any university came up with a new little medical device or a little new research device and was able to say, hey, look, I'm a, I just incorporated a small company. I'm creating this new novel thing. That's great. But I'm not going to spend the next year doing uh, data mining mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and uh, making an app for the iPhone because I can just use off this SDK so that I can focus on what the real translational advance that I've made is. Mm-hmm. And right. the actual science part in the actual science right i mean if if they've made a new type of for example ecg that is fantastic so electrocardiogram that is really fantastic um then they should be focusing on that and getting that device to market as soon as possible how can we um as a society and and more precisely we as biobrit enable people like that that i think that that's really what we we care about how can we give them access to a platform that allows them to just 
add three lines of code and all of a sudden they have all their data and it's indexable mm -hmm. and it's searchable. Um, they can start doing analysis and they can pull the, again, MIMO, right? Um, they can pull it out to a statistical software or they can pull it out to one of their prospective clients, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where kind of our mission is, is that to be that little stair step so that we enable other people. I, I, would, I would love to see that happen. Yeah. So, so who do you see else working on solving this problem? Because I mean, this can't be like a new. Oh, maybe we should just make a standard set of tools and sensors that everybody uses. Like, like what are other approaches that are being taken? And yeah, um, I think so. We, for example, we're we're talking to a lot of like uh, open hardware providers, um, mm -hmm. um, and and I, I love those guys. I, I there was a little article that that really a lot of people came out of woodwork and started contacting us, um, and and saying like, hey, look, I'm making this like, uh, for example, Open QCM, um, uh, Coarse Crystal Microbalance. There's a group of people in Italy, um, I believe in the south of Italy, doing this. Uh, open hardware quest crystal microbalance based on basically an Arduino platform. And it's all open hardware. Their microbalance is, I believe, 400 euros instead of closer to hmm. uh, tens of thousands for a system hmm. because it's not so fully integrated. And it enables other people to hack onto it. And, and it enables now a research group to buy two and say, hey, we'll, we'll screw around with the second one right. because it's so cheap. We'll just try to develop our new technique on the second one. Whereas if it's like $10,000 you might not, or 10,000 euros, you might not be able to you know, buy two to just build something new on the second one. I see. Right. I've been to a bunch of um, accelerator, hardware accelerator demo mm -hmm. days. Yeah. And um, David and I saw some stuff at, uh, at the iGEM event here in mm -hmm. Boston a couple of months ago. A big, you know, generation of biology lab tools made of like 8020 aluminum uh yeah. posts and kind of hacked together with stepper motors and uh worm screws and and doing things like pipetting so is that is that kind of the the ecosystem that would eventually plug into this platform yeah i mean that that's exactly kind of uh um i think where the field is headed and and i'd like to see everybody along the ladder you know mm -hmm. everything from like a really like ten hundred thousand dollar uh equipment robot from a professional robot company all the way down to a two thousand dollar one like for example opentrons i think is one of them mm -hmm. it, I, I think that's totally right. I mean, there are challenges there in terms of speed, in terms of pipetting accuracy. But again, it's better to have an analog scale across an analog scale of answers instead of just being you know stuck to one just because the market forces have dictated in the past that, that this would be right. Uh, hardware is becoming so much easier to to develop. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it, I'm a biologist by training. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do hardware engineering and right. firmware editing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's going to lead to really blurring the lines. Um, mm -hmm. I had this slide uh, where I, in the church lab, where, so where I come from at Harvard. There, I had this slide that mixed three areas of interest of mine. It was like uh, EECS, kind of electronic engineering and, and computer science, um, you know, fabrication, so modern fabrication, things like fab labs and, 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 and cheap access to fabrication technologies and biology. Mm -hmm. right, the intersection of those uh, pairwise um, is, are, are things that have emerged in the past, you know, say, decade. Uh, but we're really getting to a point where we're starting to merge all three. Mm -hmm. And so you've got someone who's now a biologist is able to, in a week, and this is something we did at MIT, create a liquid handling robot um, that was pipetting. And we, we drew from somebody who was experienced at uh, machine building, somebody who has more biology background. Mm -hmm. We cast the tips, you know, mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. so, so, so that's the point is I think that as things get merged closer, we're going to see a new breed of mm -hmm. biologists, at least I hope, um, where we'll be able to solve all sorts of problems that 
existing market infrastructures just don't allow you to solve. Mm. So there's this interesting thing that you're pointing to here where the professions of electrical engineering, software development, and now biology are all merging. Um, it strikes me that an interesting challenge is that, for the most part, electrical engineers, for instance, use tools that, that electrical engineers have built, and software developers use software tools. Uh, biologists are using tools that electrical engineers have built, right? And so it's a different discipline for them um, as they start to get into developing their own tools here. Yeah, I think, so actually you're highlighting exactly another um, parallel with healthcare. And and this is this is known as kind of like the, uh, the software engineer versus doctor debate. It's like you build a technology, assume that they will come, and then the doctor goes like, oh, sorry, I'm too busy saving lives, right? <laughs> um, and in the lab, you're not directly saving lives or like patients are not at risk um, most of the time, but you are running around and, and the clock is always against you. Right. And so so if you're running around trying to catch things, uh, do them reproducibly with a timer, everything's screaming at you and everything is dynamic, which means you wait another five minutes and you may actually have to redo two weeks worth of work. Right. Mm -hmm. So 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 because it is everything is always running away from you, you have this time pressure. And so you don't really have time to use technologies that are not perfectly tailored for your workflow. Mm -hmm. um, but you're correct that the lack of skill set that uh, in terms of engineering that biologists traditionally have, I think, is a problem. Um, but it, it's, it's going away. I mean, I'm, I, I guess uh, I and, and others are kind of examples of people who are more hybrid by design. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a biologist by undergrad in biology. I worked at IBM research, right? Um, even had the head of research ask me like, okay, where the fuck did we hire you? <laughs> well, um, well um, uh, and so... I can do many things. Right, exactly. <laughs> But 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 slowly moving towards uh, hardware and software. And so one of the things I did was actually try to build a bridge between electronics mm -hmm. and computer science and biology by having cells automatically report their internal state using kind of a, an engineered protein. Hmm. But even then, you're, you, you know, you're always limited by exactly the pipetter and all these machines. And so I, I said, okay, well, how do, how do I get to build more of these tools uh -huh. so that... And, and so that that's that's exactly right. And the people who work with us and 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 who know me well and and work in our environment are people who have that similar background. Are people who are biologists by training, or are very understanding of the biological workflow mm -hmm. and the problems we have to face, but are always like, oh, you know, I can hack this little Arduino thing together and yeah. solve my problem. Right. So so many people will say now that that democratization of synthetic biology is now on its way up the the Gartner hype cycle. What do you think about the idea of biology and synthetic biology moving from large, well-funded labs into people's personal workspaces and like homes and kitchens or whatever and kind of democratizing technology and like what can people do with it and like what will they do with it and what should they do with it? Like what's that? What's it going to look shouldn't. like if, you know, yeah. if you can get inexpensive open source tools for doing synthetic biology, yeah. what, how does that change things? Yeah, I'm... You know, I, I think a lot of people have been talking about uh, parallels with computing and the personal computer. I, I think that's flawed, personally, mm -hmm. in many ways, it's a bit limited because there's a fundamental difference. Um, let's say we have three laptops around the table right now. Let's say we didn't like our laptops anymore. We could smash them against the window or with a hammer and they'd be done. They wouldn't work anymore, right? Mm -hmm. The difference with biological technology is that there is no, there is no space, there's no gap between the subject and the object. Um, mm. and, and, and that's actually one of the definitions of science originally is that there is a gap between object and, and subject. And so that means what if, and this is the eternal fears, what if something goes wrong, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just smash 
the technology in this case against the window and be done with it. So, so, so there's there's been traditionally concerns of of, of safety and things like that. Um, that being said, you know, I was actually one of the first people doing um, DIY bio uh, here in Cambridge and in Somerville, and with Matt Cowell and Jason Bobe and people like that around here. Um, and we 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 talked a lot about these kinds of topics of like what should we be doing and what could we be doing. And since then, you've seen a lot of what were the results of those talks. Um, Largely, you see that people want to do kind of cool-looking things. So we did little fluorescent proteins expressing themselves, and and making. I I did this little thing where we had pens that would auto, that would glow, and then you 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 highlighted a word with like blue light because it was triggered. It would change color overnight, oh, nice. and, and these kind of cute uh, little little technologies like that. And and you've seen a resurgence of those in recent years uh, on Kickstarter for mm-hmm. mostly enabled by Kickstarter um, around glowing plants and and more artistic installations. I think there's definitely a, a realm there. And, and it's fantastic to see that, that more people are getting involved in biology. Well, and I think when, when Arduinos came out, all the real yeah. seasoned electrical engineers kind of rolled their eyes and were like, oh, good, a microcontroller development kit. I've never seen that before. <laughs> and, you know, oh, look, these people at home are lighting up LEDs, like whoopee. But there seems to be kind of more baseline knowledge injected into the into the general population that now you're kind of, st- well, now we're starting to see Kickstarter projects that are based around Arduino architectures mm-hmm and like other open source things and i feel like the it's kind of having like a bottom-up approach on the way that that people are thinking about what to work on and and what they're doing and even how they do it yeah we've we've talked about this before a little bit on the podcast but you know the parallel to the pc industry that may be useful is that uh, when the personal computer came out it was well beneath most existing users of computers who immediately dismissed it They're like come on i'm a professional i need to use a mainframe you know, and and uh, so the the PC found a market among people who didn't already have computers, and then the you know they became powerful enough enough of an ecosystem grew up around them that they became compelling, and then uh, you know the professional users started to use them. Uh, you know, maybe there's a certainly we're seeing that now with Arduino and Raspberry Pi as well, which also you know Raspberry Pi was a novel thing to hobbyists and people who hadn't had the resources to get their hands on highly compact resource saving um, computers but to professionals you know that was not particularly interesting but now you start to see yeah these projects new consumer devices on kickstarter built on top of arduino raspberry pis being deployed in all sorts of places um you know where, where you wouldn't expect something that lightweight to go but more importantly you see like people within large companies who haven't been the embedded systems engineers are able to use a Raspberry Pi to solve some problem that they weren't able to solve before. Yeah, so I think that's right, and and, and that analogy I think is is will be applicable. Is that there'll be more biology injected mm-hmm. um, in 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 everyday development, and and people will start thinking as biological technologies mature and become more robust, um, actually be integrated more into the the development workflow, uh, especially at the you know closer to. Healthcare and 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 genetic profiling, things like that, personal medicine um, aspects like those. Um, I think there's another aspect, and you just highlighted it with uh, with uh, Raspberry Pis and and Arduinos, is that these things will start bleeding over, and so you'll have a class of individuals who are kind of self-taught, uh, who and you're seeing that already in synthetic biology, who are building their own little cheap liquid handlers and getting little experiments uh, off the ground and getting those working. Um, I think eventually that ha- will have a fe- phenomenal effect, much like iGem did, mm-hmm. uh, to just bring more people into the mix. I- iGem is 
for the listeners. That's right. iGEM is the uh, International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition that was actually started by uh, uh, people at MIT, including Tom Knight. It's effectively a first robotics-style competition for genetically en- engineering uh, bacteria, usually, or yeast. Well, one of the posters when, when John and I were there, my favorite one was someone talking about making yogurt with uh, genetically engineered things that would excrete the proper hormones to adjust your adjust your circadian rhythm. So the idea was like if you're getting on a long flight, you like eat some of this yogurt or like if you get off in a different time zone, you eat some of this yogurt. You eat actually... some Hong Kong yogurt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, those are, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, you that's see like that, stuff that people are doing right now in labs, like as part of a competition. Like it's 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 awesome. Hashtag it's, it's, it's happening. Yeah, and it's <laughs> undergrads too, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is like a completely this is a completely new generation of people, and uh, I think it will change the way biology is done, if only by the virtue of of the people coming into it now. Mm-hmm. So, so in the same way that people who know how to use an Arduino go around and think about nothing but what they could do with an Arduino to solve something. They're like, oh man, an Arduino and some LEDs and a little sensor over that door would be amazing. Do you, Charles, walk around all over the place and think about stuff that you could solve with synthetic biology? Uh, yeah, actually, I did for a long time. It's really funny. Um, there were two projects that I thought about that have now become commercial realities by other mm. people. Um, <laughs> that is really odd. I saw a few weeks ago, I was thinking of a, a way to replace concrete. So I can talk about it now because, you know, somebody else is doing it, which is <laughs> awesome. Um, there are ways that you could actually try to get bacteria to produce concrete or at mm. least to repair cracks. And I saw recently a company that's doing that now and basically offering to spray your concrete over with these bacteria. And actually, in 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 transparency to what we've just been talking about, emerging from it is is the problem of yield. This is one that biology and synthetic biology, I think, will see soon. Um, more seriously is that a lot of people say oh look at this blue sky thinking amazing thing but in reality it's just not cost effective to produce something mm-hmm. like that using synthetic biology and actually chemically it's fantastic and the result of that is that a lot of existing big synthetic biology company companies actually focus in places where chemical industry has traditionally focused mm-hmm. and they're trying to produce high value products that are not produce uh they're not producible with other means interesting so things so- like scent Mm-hmm. Or like, uh, per, you know, for perfumes and, mm-hmm. and and the big, all the big companies like you know, Ginkgo Bioworks and and, and uh, Zymergen, and all those are actually focusing heavily on that area. Huh. So they take something that that, for instance, is is a chemically reduced extract of some um, agricultural process in the way it's traditionally made. So it's very expensive um, and and made through a, a really onerous process, and and figure they can synthesize it. Um, that's right. Um, I, I would say that that particular example might not be the best because actually if there's already process done and, and actually you say it's very expensive, but I'm talking about things that are, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars per gram, mm-hmm. right? Not feedstock. And so actually some synthetic biology companies like LS9 or Juul Technologies um, were, were working on fuel, diesel fuel. Hmm. Um, and obviously, uh, recently, the price of gas has gone down dramatically. Well, there's no market anymore for that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So so you got to pick... Uh, the market forces are, are not currently favoring the development of synthetic biological fuel. So, <laughs> exactly. so, we, so we don't get to work on it anymore. Exactly. But there are, and, and, and so you see those forces shaping the, the industry and you see them pushing uh, towards mm-hmm. very high value, difficult or, or impossible to 
produce um, currently by by current chemical means or, or or biological means, and so you replace a plant by leaders of a bug mm-hmm. yeah. for things like pharmaceutical ingredients and um, indu- specialty industrial chemicals and stuff like that. That's right. Yeah. So in and and in one very interesting case, um, a, a startup called Pembient has been making synthetic rhino horn. It's uh, you know the the idea is that you can synthesize uh, rhino horn in a lab and flood the market with it and then drive down the market price of rhino horn to the point where poaching is no longer uh, economically feasible. But in one case, they, they brought this to the solid conference back at the beginning of the summer. They have formulated a solid version and 3D printed it into the shape of a rhino horn uh, so that it's genetically identical to a rhino horn and shaped like a rhino horn too. Um, has a lot of the same physical characteristics as a rhino horn. Well, if it quacks like a rhino horn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the uh, I went to the demo day. They came out of um, uh, Indie Bio, right? Yeah, Indie Bio, the right, the, yeah. the new um, synthetic biology incubator in in San Francisco, and uh, they showed during their demo an ad that a Vietnamese cosmetics company had produced for the first um, uh, sort of cream that was being manufactured with their synthetic. Uh, rhino horn in it. Everyone in the room laughed. It was subtitled because it it begins with a, a beautiful woman, you know, sort of rushing through um, what looks like a an old temple or something. And the subtitles, the narration is saying, uh, "Our ancestors always trusted rhino horn to um, as a source of energy and and purity, but the world around us has become impure and dirty. But now, from the gleaming clean world of." Washington State, and it goes from like uh, you know a, a, an a, an overview of like um, sort of polluted South Asian city or something to a, a shot of of glimmering Seattle with uh, with Mount Rainier behind it. Uh, so it's that's that's an interesting angle to it too. Maybe maybe uh, American made rhino horn is is more valuable in the first place than well, it's all about the cell, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they nailed it. By the end of it, I was ready to buy some of their rhino horn instead of some illegally poached, dirty rhino horn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sounds gross. Yeah. Poaching is gross. Uh, it is. Yeah, we condemn it wholeheartedly. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, absolutely. <laughs> so now we go to our segment called Click Spiral, which is where um, each of us talks about something that we've sunk in a lot of time into on Wikipedia or elsewhere on the internet sometime recently. Um, thinking that uh, by sharing this with the listeners will also cause you to sink a lot of your time into it. And if you have something that you have enjoyed sinking a lot of time into that you want to share with David and me, you can email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com and um, we'll check out your click spiral and um, and maybe put it on the podcast at some point in the future. So let's start with our guest, uh, Charles. Where, what have you been sinking your time into recently? So recently I read the entirety of the oxytocin Wikipedia article to my girlfriend, uh, much to her. How romantic. Yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) Two Uh, more people lose a valuable part of their life to oxytocin. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, what is it if you don't share it? So oxytocin is normally produced in the hypothalamus and start... No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's it's actually fascinating, Um, you know, produced in the brain brain and and really sexual romanticism is centered around this this molecule but it's really just a chemical that's all in your head right it's crazy um Hmm. and the people actually artists uh, have been starting to use it uh to try to make yeah for example there's an artist at at the media lab actually that that had a project uh 
uh, around oxytocin and, and impregnating it in like silk mm. uh, or trying to anyway. So and and, and so yeah, it's it's really fascinating. So in I, silk I or in silkworms? No, no, in silk, in silk. So the idea huh. was that you you would have this like uh, robe that you could wear and, and try to entice people, make you to. feel really good, make <laughs> everyone else feel really exactly. good. Exactly. Wait, and how did that? You said that didn't go uh, anywhere. Um, no, I don't actually, I don't know where the project is, but, uh, but I, I, I helped her early on trying to, uh, uh you know, understand the, the soundness of some of, uh, of her projects there, but, uh, I don't know where it went. I think she presented it actually in Tokyo, uh, months back now. David, what's your click spiral? Well, when Marcelo Coelho and I were in China doing work for the pop-up factory at Solid this past year, um, we took a day and went to this village uh, near Shenzhen called Dafin, and it's the painting village. And it's actually where there are thousands of artists who basically mass produce all of the world's like copies of Van Gogh and like kitschy artwork and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> there are some people who do, you know, there are many artists who do their own works and stuff, but this entire place was kind of started um, in the 80s um, by this businessman named Huang Jiang. Um, and he thought of the idea that it'd be cool to get a lot of people together and instead of having individual artists with their own studios like work on making paintings all together and so like one of their very first orders was for many thousands of paintings of the exact same thing for kmart hmm. um and so now the whole place has gotten become like pretty integrated and there's many studios where they'll take in a big order for a painting and they'll just line up a hundred canvases and there'll be one artist that goes down and replicates the exact same brushstroke and does painting and mass production and so what this then turns into is that you can, you know, take your own photos and ask them to turn it into a painting. You can ask people to take this photo and like maybe do it more in an, an impressionism style. Because, you know, there's people who specialize in reproducing Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh. And that's like all that they do. So it can become a, a human Instagram filter. Exactly. Yeah. So there was actually, so this article, we'll post it in the show notes, um, was written by one of the people who started this company called Instapainting. Um which is interesting to read about because the second that we went to Dauphin, we were like, man, we should really start this like online service where you can upload your Instagram <laughs> photos and, and have people, you know, paint them. But it turns out that someone's already done it. I'm waiting for some sort of, uh, you know, startup founder with high self-regard to commission a painting from there um, in which like he replaces George Washington and Washington crossing the Delaware. Yeah. And turns it into a giant tableau or, or that. We should pretty much do that, though. We should. We should. <laughs> you and I could do it, or or we could have have one made of Tim O'Reilly or exactly. something. Exactly, and we'll like be in the boat, like cowering from cowering yeah. from the cold and like the just general discomfort. Yeah. Exactly. You can have like Linus Torvalds in the front leading the way, and you know, <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, that'd be amazing. All right, so John, what do you have? What is your click spiral? Calipers. Calipers. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, that's oh, a good oh, one. Guys. I've been there. We've all been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah guys. Yeah. yeah. The 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 range of calipers out there. And and at the high end, the uh, the exquisiteness of their manufacture is is driving me crazy. Um, this is something that I only really started dumping a lot of time into yesterday. But uh, I was thinking of buying a pair of machinists calipers because the ones that I use at Tech Shop have been dropped a lot. So I went on, and you know there are a lot of adequate ones for like twenty dollars now. Digital calipers, very inexpensive and and generally very good. Um, but as soon as you start to go on like the machinists forums and see these posts about what people use, it, there's just a ladder that you go up and consequently a spiral that you go down <laughs> on the internet um, where first of all, you know, everyone is like, oh, those cheap ones. I don't know. If, you, if you're really someone who takes his work seriously, you got to go with Starrett calipers. And these are like, this is a, a Massachusetts based company that's made machine tools and measurement tools for a long time. They've started outsourcing production though to China. And um, so then you keep going into these forums and, and everyone is like, 
I've, oh, I like I liked them before they went to China or something. Right, exactly. My Starrett calipers from 1980 were my greatest <laughs> companion, but I recently bought one and they're made in China and what the hell. So now I buy everything from Mitutoyo, which is a Japanese company Mitutoyo. that makes precision um, precision measuring instruments. Are, are yours digital calipers? Uh, these are both digital and dial calipers. Oh, I see. Oh. Or if you're hardcore, oh. vernier calipers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so then you go to uh, Mitutoyo and, and look up that stuff, and they are spectacular. But they've started making some of them in Brazil, and the, the curmudgeons on the machinists forums are not so happy about this. So then, you know, you go from like on the Starrett forums, they're like, oh, I don't waste my time on Starrett anymore. I go to Mitutoyo, and then on the Mitutoyo forums, they're like, ugh, this stuff, I don't know. Now you got to get brown and sharp, brown which and sharp. is made in Switzerland. What are the what are the merits of of these calipers? Because all all of my calipers have always come from Harbor Freight, and yeah. I just get digital ones, and then I measure things with them until they fall apart, and then I get a new one. So, like, what is the the value? So there's like there's a theoretical value in their accuracy. Realistically, they're all probably about the same accuracy. Yeah, yeah. But then in in the bottom of these forum threads, everyone kind of admits that it's just a matter of pleasurability. It also feels and, good too, right? Like, yeah. You know, you know, right. I found uh, this this um, precision instrument service company servicing company that's based on long island and has a pretty comprehensive pros and cons rundown of all the different brands of caliper and uh, a little bit of detail on kind of like when they went south or when they mm. when they revised their design when they, when they lost the original focus yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah exactly and um but yeah it's it fundamentally is a matter of enjoyment and just yeah. like picking up the thing feeling satisfied by holding it the other thing that's really fun that uh, that star itself is a briefcase full of gauges of um, different of, of blocks of finely ground steel or ceramic that uh, that are precisely the width specified. Wow. And you buy like a, a giant set of these things and use them to calibrate your equipment. You know, you stack them up under your uh, spindle gauge and your machine tools or uh, or in your other equipment to, to calibrate it. Um, and these things sell for for up to eleven or twelve thousand dollars. Well, you better wow. put them back in their right place. Or- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. There's a shop teacher uh, yeah, exactly. explosion waiting to happen. <laughs> so. do, do you have a favorite pipetter? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, who's? Absolutely. Raynan has been my pipetter. It's it's really funny because you, you get trained with certain people. And for example, there was this postdoc um, who was in church lab who taught me a lot. And he was like, oh, he was very particular about his pipettes and everything. And, mm-hmm. and you know, with good reason. Um, and they have this thing called LTS, which I, I don't know exactly what it stands for, but it's basically it's a softer uh, push, and so it feels a lot uh, smoother when you when you move uh, liquids around and when you push the, the the piston down. And so that was that was super important. So I actually and everybody, well, usually in in good labs, people have their own, and you do not mess with other people's <laughs> pets. That's like a big no no. Thank you, Charles, for for joining us. Yeah. This is actually the first. Yeah, I believe this is the first specific to synthetic biology episode of the podcast that we've had, isn't it? I think that's right. Yeah, we've we've talked about synthetic biology. Um, we have a tag about it in the intro. Yeah, yeah. David and I uh, talked big about synthetic biology, but uh, this we, is the first time we've ever actually confronted it uh, directly. Oh, well, look at that! <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Charles Frakia, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Um, oh, you can go in a variety of places. I have my own website if you want to read about me, but I don't know why you would want to do that. Um, <laughs> there's an email at the bottom there. So yeah, do contact me. Um, we're Biobright is at biobright.org. And that's, um, uh, how do you spell it? B-I-O-B-R-I-G-H-T. I see. So it's, it's not a T-E. It's a... No, no, actually, don't, and don't look 
Pyrite with a T, I think it's a cleaning product. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Glimmer yeah. with the power of exactly. biology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. Well, Charles, thank you so much for coming on the program. No, thank you. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>